being willing always to sing for us. So, um, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, to turn with me once again to Colossians chapter 3, uh, where we will read uh, for the third, the third week in a row, uh, verses 12 through 17. Now, uh, you'll recall that the previous two weeks we have actually read verses 1 through 17, uh, but today I felt like maybe we could cut it down a little bit uh, and just focus on these things specifically that we have before us. And you'll also notice that in that theme, um, I have uh, changed up our sermon theme, our sermon title, uh, Marks of the Christian Church, but you should know that in reality this is part three of what we've been calling a complete transformation, okay? So this is really a three-part sermon, and this is the, the third part of it. We're just looking at it under a different head. So uh, you'll recall that we've seen uh, in the first two installments the foundational shift and the identity change that is the reality for those who are resting in Christ. And then we've also seen that we are to actively, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of Christ in us, to put off the old man, to put off the sin that, that weighs us down, to put off those things that we have clung to in the past, and we are to actively put on the new self, okay? Uh, and so today we're going to consider more of what it means to put on that new self. Uh, as those who are God's people, as those who are in Christ, what we want to recognize here are the characteristics that mark not only God's people, but because the church is made up of God's people, it's marks that, that will, are characteristics that will mark the church as a whole. How are we as New Albany Presbyterian Church to present ourselves to the world and also, how are we supposed to present ourselves to each other? So, that's our focus this morning. Let's read once again verses 12 through 17 of Colossians chapter 3. It says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we know that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so, Father, we ask that you, the God of endurance and encouragement, would grant us to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may with one voice glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask it. Amen. Well, it's not uncommon uh, in our day and age, and this has probably been true in every day and age, but particularly it seems that we hear this a lot now. It's not, it's not uncommon 
to hear those outside of the church say things like, I love Jesus, I love the things that he taught or the things that he did, I appreciate him as a person, but I don't love the church. Or maybe they'll say, I love Christ, but I don't love those who call themselves or claim to be Christians. Now, I'm sure all of us have had friends or co-workers who have said these sorts of things. Or maybe you, in your own heart of hearts, sort of feel this way even now, even as you come into worship today. Christ, Christianity, they're great, but the church is sort of a big mess. It's, it's made up of messy people. Uh, there's a lot of messy ideas. There's a lot of messy practices. And so, you know, can't we just do this whole Christian thing? Can't we just do it on our own? You know, can't we just stay at home and do it there? Can't we just do it as individuals without the church? Well, friends, at the risk of getting us way too far afield this morning, I want to note two things about this line of thinking, and I hope what it will do is prepare us for what I have for for us this morning, okay, or what the Lord has for us this morning. First, the biblical answer to the question of can't we just be Christians without the church is a clear and unequivocal no, okay? From the start, we need to recognize that. God's purpose in redemption from before the foundations of the world, has always been not simply to save individuals, not simply to save Stephen, though that I was in mind when Jesus went to the cross. He certainly died for me. He died for you if you're resting in him. So there is an individual element to our faith. But all along, what has God been doing? He has been creating for himself a people. Not just a person, but a people. And so we go back through the Old Testament. We hear that covenant promise over and over and over again. I will be your God, and you will be, again, not my individual, but you will be my people. We read of how he made Abraham, one individual, into a great nation that would go and bless all the people of the world. We read how through their their disobedience and exile, those people... Those Jewish people, even through all of that, God was preserving for himself a remnant, right? We have this remnant theology, especially in the prophets, where God is taking this small group, those who are faithful, and he is clinging to them. He he is keeping them for himself. Some, even that were not so faithful. He is keeping them for himself. A small covenant community, preserved. And then in the New Testament, of course, we read that Jesus is the savior of his bride, right? That the church, that as we read here in Colossians, he is the head of the body, the church, and that believers at the top of your bulletin there in in, uh, uh, 2 Peter, that, that we have been saved to be a royal priesthood, right? A people for God's own possession. Again, notice the language, not individuals for God's own possession, but a people, a group, a community, Then, of course, in the book of Acts, we see the church's formation. We see the acts of God to draw whole groups together. Paul calls us over and over again to what? To unity, to stand together as the bride of Christ. 
And then in Revelation, what, what is the picture that we see at the very end? It's not, it is individuals who are there, but what are they doing? They are joined together. As we've mentioned in, in our psalm this morning, as the choir sang us in, they are all joined together. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation, different backgrounds, different cultures, they are all joined together to worship the king. It is a covenant community worshiping their Savior. Now look, I've made a big deal out of that because we are Americans and we are Southerners and we are individuals and we like our individual freedoms and we like to do things on our own. And that's okay sometimes, but as a church, it's not an option. As a Christian, it's not an option. We're not intended to do this thing by ourselves. God is saving us to be a people. Secondly, however, we do need to recognize that many people who feel this way about the church, this idea that I just want to do this by myself, they feel that way with legitimate cause. You know, the church has hurt them. Church people have hurt them. Maybe those in authority have, done what they were, uh, have not done what they were supposed to do. In fact, maybe they did what they were not supposed to do. Or maybe they look back over the course of church history and they see the, the great sins in the church's past, the, the bad things that the church has done in the name of God, the divisions, the schisms that, that seem to be a constant reality of God's people. They see the, the downright hypocrisy that surely exists in our midst and we, as those who are active members of that body, have no choice but to acknowledge the truth of it all. Friends, again, that the simple fact is, is the truth, is the church, because it's made up of recovering sinners, it is messy. It's messy, okay? And so people, maybe you, uh, have a legitimate reason to, a want to, to want to avoid association with the church, and so I've said all of that, I've got us so far off the, the course this morning, to now ask you this question. Here's the question that's before us. If the body of Christ, unity with God's people, is, as I've said, a necessary part of the Christian life, how can we convince those outside of the church, how can we maybe convince our own hearts that we really do need the church? How can we deal with the difficulties and the barriers that seem to stand in the way. Well, first, uh, we have to be willing, as we've done this morning, to acknowledge and admit the realities of the things that are true about the church, that, that sometimes it is hard, that sometimes it is messy. But we also have to be firm in the fact that it is not optional, that it is a necessary part of the Christian life. Then secondly, and this gets us back to our text today, we as the church, and if I've lost you up until this point, pick back up now because this is really my point today, okay? We as the church, we have to start living and acting like the church, like the biblical church, like the way that, that God, that Christ calls his people to live, the way that Paul and the apostles call us to live over and over and over again. 
Friends, the simple reality is, is that for too long we have been willing, as God's people, to straddle the fence. We've been willing to sort of tiptoe the line between the world and the kingdom. We, we have sort of wanted to have our feet in both places. But, but what's clear from Scripture is that, one, Christ did not intend for any of us to straddle the fence, much less his bride, and actually, he will not allow his bride to straddle the fence. Okay, we can't, we can't do that. But then secondly, what's clear from Scripture, friends, is that if we want to see the church grow, if we want to see hearts changed, lives changed outside of our walls, the only way that that is truly going to happen is for the world to see us living as God's people to see us living as Christ has called us to live. They need to see us acting in this way. Think back to the book of Acts. You remember in Acts chapter 4, and I use this example probably way too much, but you remember, what is it there about the church that draws people in? You know, it doesn't say that they're going out and beating people over the head with the Bible. Now, they may have been doing that, and they just don't say it, that's not what it says. It says that they were gathered together, that they were sharing all things, that they were enjoying fellowship together, enjoying meals together. In other words, they were living as God's people together. And it says that God was adding to their number. You see what was happening there? People looked in and they said, look at these people. They are different than the world. They're different than, than what we are. They do have peace. They do have all of these things that I want. I'm going to go see what this is all about. I'm going to go see what they believe about this person, Jesus. And it was through that fellowship, through the church, that God was adding to their number. And so we, we must start living like Christ's bride, acting like the church, like the transformed community, I've tried to convince us over the past three weeks that Paul is calling us to be. The question for today is, what does that look like? What are, if we're going to live like the church, if we're going to live as God's people, what does that mean? What, what should we look like? Well, that's, that's where we're headed. Let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is that or maybe the first mark of the Christian church. It's not going to be an exhaustive list, to be sure. But the first mark of the Christian church is that we have an unshakable confidence, an unshakable hope. You see it there in verse 12. And friends, we began this last week, began to look at this a little bit. But today, I would simply remind you that as Christians, as the church, we are there in verse 12 first, God's chosen ones. God's chosen ones. Just as he called Israel from all the nations of the earth to be his own possession, not because they were bigger and stronger or holier or anything in them, he called them out of all the nations of the world simply out of his good pleasure, simply for his amazing grace. Just as he did that, so too has he done that for us the New Testament people of God. Again, all the church, we are chosen by God. We are called in under His mercy, 
under his grace. And look, friends, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. In John chapter 15 and in verse 16, Jesus says to the disciples, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And in Romans 9, Paul makes the whole case, and we don't have time to go through it right now, but he makes the whole case with Esau and Jacob and with, um, with, the, uh, with Pharaoh that it was God who was doing the work. In John chapter 6, he says, My sheep, they hear my voice. All who the Father send to me, they will come. And that first Peter passage again at the top of your bullet. You are a chosen people. You are God's. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now look, I told them this morning in, in Sunday school that we were going to do this, and we're going to do it lightly. But, but this is getting us to that doctrine of predestination that we as Reformed people are, are so known for and people want to give us a hard time for. And look, we have to admit that it is not easy and it is mysterious, okay? And, and that's true. It is mysterious and it's hard for us to, to wrestle with, even as those who profess to believe it. But what I want you to recognize is the Westminster Confession of Faith, following Scripture, following what, what they believe Scripture says, affirms both God's choice in salvation and also man's responsibility in salvation. We are not puppets on a string, and yet what we want to recognize are what's the grounds of a doctrine like this? Why do we, why do we believe this? Well, first, it's because we believe in a sovereign God. We believe in a God who is in control of all things. If he's in control of everything else, then surely he's in control of salvation as well. Secondly, we also believe in the, the truth of man's total depravity, right? The truth of Scripture is clear, friends. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We are unclean. We are enemies of God. We are unrighteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, if you just re read Romans 1 to Romans 3, you're going to get a very clear picture of who we are in our sin. None is worthy, no, not one. None is able, not even one. And so given those two things, we need to say that if it was left up to us, none would come. We're enemies of God. None of us would come. But then secondly, we need to recognize that we shouldn't be surprised that God would choose some we should be surprised that he chooses it all. That he doesn't leave us all to our sin. That's what he should have done. That's what he has the right to do. Leave us all to the wrath of God. And yet in his mercy and in his grace, he has deemed and decreed to choose some. Friends, here's the good part. Here's the whole point that I'm trying to get to here. Because that's true. Because... God has chosen. What that means for you and I today is that we have an unshakable assurance of our salvation. We have an unshakable hope that we will make it to the end. Okay? Here's the truth. If our assurance of salvation rests in us, if it rests in me in any way, 
then all I can hope for is a salvation that, is, that I'm constantly picking up and putting down. Because my faith is weak, and I recognize that. Like, there's days where it is high, and there's days where it's very low. And so if I'm dependent on me to keep me there, I'm in trouble. But if our assurance rests in the sovereign choice, the unchangeable decree of God, then, friends, we have grounds and a foundation that will never be shaken. What can pluck us from the hands of God? Nothing, right? And why is that true? Because he has declared it. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. And why is that true? Because he has done it. The reason is God has chosen and he will not let us go. So, for the church, for us as a body together, that means we don't waver. It means we don't fluctuate. It means we don't worry in the face of trials. Christ loves his bride, the bride that he died for. He gave himself for. And so though a thousand may stand against us, though tens of thousands may stand against us, though we may come right up to the very gates of hell themselves, we will not be overcome because he will not be overcome. He has declared it. And that's the end of it. He will do it. He will keep us as his chosen ones. We have assurance in the world. But friends, we also have assurance before the throne of God because we are these chosen ones. Notice what he says about us. We're we're God's chosen ones and we are holy and beloved in Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness. We are clothed in his goodness. Yes, in this life, we struggle. But believer, take heart today. In Christ, you are spotless. In Christ, you are holy. In Christ, you are loved beyond measure. The church, as messy as it is, is beloved by its its Savior. And even as we wait that day where it will be where the where the church will be presented pure before her bridegroom, we are even now legally and federally and truly holy in Christ. Friends, we, we gotta move on to the next point because we're we're running out of time. But let me say to you, if this doctrine is hard for you, join the club. Okay? It's hard for all of us. It's not easy for any of us. Okay? If this idea of predestination is difficult, good. But don't put it down. Pick up your Bibles. Read them. Because it's there. Okay? It's there on almost every page. Read it and take it for what it is. And know that God loves his people. And through this doctrine, we have great assurance. We have great assurance of God's love for us. Secondly, in this passage, I want you to notice, not only do we have an unshakable assurance, but we also have a countercultural character, and you see it there in verses 12 through 14. And last week we saw what we were putting off in three broad categories. Today we're going to see what we're putting on in three broad categories, okay? So the first one is an amazing tolerance. Amazing tolerance. Now, If you're listening to me, and I hope you are, I hope that word tolerance makes you cringe just a little bit, okay? It's amazing tolerance 
Because if you were to ask a random non-believer out in the street what they didn't like about the church, I would venture to say the majority of them would say something to the effect of they are closed-minded and they are bigots and they are intolerant of everything. If they say that to you, take them to Colossians chapter 3. Read them verses 12 through 14. Because look at what Paul says there. To be sure, he calls us to be intolerant of those things that are not of God. That's his whole point of this letter. There's people bringing in false doctrine. He said, you can't do that, right? We're to be rigid about the things that God says. We cannot compromise those things. But in terms of earthly organizations... The church is one of the most tolerant places there is in all the earth. Look at verse 12. It says, have compassionate hearts, sympathy, care for others. Be kind, going out of our way for others. Be humble, considering others more important than ourselves. Be meek, gentle, and submissive. Be patient, slow to anger, willing to walk alongside those who, who, who don't know. Bear with one another, their faults and their burdens. Forgive one another. Don't hold crudges. Have that peace. Don't be quarrelsome. Be thankful in all that you do. And above all else, love one another. Love holds it all together. Again, according to verse 11, we are to do all of that no matter a person's race or nationality or economic status or social status or education level. Now, you may tell me that, no, you, no, no, hang on a second. You tell me what organization offers anything like that. What other organization on this earth is like that? The church is the only place where we can come together under Scripture, under the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to be sure not just anything goes We can all come together with all of our differences and be tolerant and learn to love one another. Now let me ask you quickly, how is that possible? How is it possible that we can be those sorts of people? Whose traits are these that, that Paul's listing for us? Who is it that epitomizes all of these things? Who is it in Matthew chapter 15 and in verse 32 who sees the crowd sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd, and he has compassion on them. It's Jesus, right? Or what about his kindness to the least of people, the worst of sinners, tax collectors and and lepers, those who nobody else wants to, to be kind to? What about in Philippians 2, where it is his mind that gives us the humility that Paul calls us to? Or Matthew 11, where he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Or Peter says that he is patient or he bears our burdens, or he forgives us on the cross, or he loves us with an everlasting... Friends, my point is that all of these traits, all these characteristics, they're Jesus's. What Paul is calling us to is what he's been calling us to this whole chapter, is to follow as the church in the footsteps of our Savior. To go out and to be transformed into his image. To live as he has lived to us. He says they're about forgiveness. Forgive as you have been forgiven. We can say that about all of these things. As you have been given compassion, go and give compassion. As you have been given kindness or meekness, go and do that out in the world. The church is the place where we serve him 
and where we display his glory, where we display his character to the world. And friends, that truth, that that displaying of the character, it begins as we interact with each other, okay? All of these things that he's calling us to, he, he intends for us to do that with people out in the world. But his primary focus is that we would act as the church with one another, that that we would be compassionate and kind and humble with people within the, the body of believers, that love would epitomize all that we do. As we, again, Paul's pushing us to, we are not of this world, that the church is of a different kingdom. And so our priorities, they, they are, are different. And so why do we, we let those, world, those attitudes from the world in? Why do we act like the world? As the church, we are obligated to all, but we are especially obligated to those of the faith. And what a witness it is to a lost and dying world when we care for the flock, as Paul calls us to care for them here. So we have an unshakable confidence, we have a countercultural character, and then thirdly and finally, we have an all-encompassing purpose. Again, you know, this has really been the theme for the past three weeks. Our foundations have changed, our actions change, and now our purpose changes. And you see it there in verses 16 and 17. Now, this purpose is not a new purpose. We were created with this purpose. But now, as the church, we are able and free to go do these things that we were created to do. And what is that thing? Worship. Okay? We were created to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And now, as the church, we are able to do that. We're able to do it corporately, where he says here that we hear God's Word, and it dwells in our hearts richly. It's gathering in this way, not because of me, not because of anybody else, but because of God, because he's faithful to his word. He applies it to our hearts in these moments, and we learn to love him, and we hide it in our hearts. He says, admonish one another with the word. How do you like that word, admonish? We've been talking about church discipline a lot in our Sunday school class, and we recognize we don't like that. Friends, if we're loving each other the way that Paul calls us to here, the way that Christ calls us to, then those hard conversations are easier to have, right? We recognize in one another that we're doing it because we love one another, not simply because we want to be mean to one another, not simply because we want to have authority over one another, but we admonish because we love, biblical love. We're to sing psalms and hymns and songs together. Friends, what a joy, what a privilege it is to sing with God's people. Now, I know maybe last Wednesday night was not everybody's favorite thing, and maybe you don't like those songs, but when you're in that room, in that small room, and you got the little kids all the way to the older folks singing together, that's a picture of heaven. That's a picture of what we're going to do around the throne together. Sing with our voices. It doesn't matter if you can sing or not. Sing it! Because He created you to do that, and He calls you to do it. Singing together, it's it's a joy. Finally, he says that we're going to give thanks to God. Corporately, we gather together. And through the sacraments, through prayer, we gather to give thanks to him for all that he has done for us. Quickly, notice that it's not just corporately, though. 
this worship applies to every aspect of our lives. There in verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, whether you are going to work, whether you're going home, whether you're going to the lake, or you're going to the ball field, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Friends, as a church, our purpose above all else is not to be trendy, it's not to be cool, it's not to be the place where the kids love to hang out, it's not to be the food bank, it's not to be the clothes closet, it's not to be the counseling center, though we may do all of those things as a part of our overall purpose. That's not the chief purpose. The chief purpose is to worship and to glorify our Savior, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, hear me now, nothing, that the world needs to see us do more than worship. They need to see that our God is worthy, that we are willing to sacrifice everything for Him. They need to see that He is kind and compassionate. They need to see that He's at work even in the mess of the church. And how will they see it if we don't worship? Worship in our words. Worship in our actions. Worship in our very lives. And so after three weeks of this, we see the transformation. And what's clear is that it is all-encompassing. I started with that statistic three weeks ago that 5 to 6% of the people who are in churches actually have an orthodox faith actually could profess Orthodox Christianity. So that means either there's a large percentage of people that are just there, or they have the wrong idea completely. Friends, Paul here in Colossians chapter 3, he puts all of that to bed. Uh, Christianity means a new foundation. It means a new identity. It means a new way to live. It means a new way to think, a new confidence, a new character, and a new purpose. You can't have all of that and be indifferent. You can't have all of that and go in halfway. It can't just be a portion of your life. It's all or it's nothing. And so I ask you, have you been transformed today? Are you resting in Christ? Is Christ in you? You and him is the spirit at work in your life. One last time, I'm going to send you out. Go into the world, okay? Go out and live for him. If you're a Christian here today, that's your chief call. Whatever, whatever it looks like, whatever form it takes, your chief call is to go out those doors to worship your Savior. Worship him in the way you live, in the way you act, and all you do. Go out and worship him. As we pray together, Father God, we pray that you would make us those type of people uh, who worship you in every area of our lives. You are worthy of it. You will have no other place. So Lord, work in our hearts in a mighty way so that we, not just as individuals, but as your church, might proclaim your goodness and we might show to a lost and dying world their only source of hope and peace and eternal satisfaction. And it is Jesus and him alone. Father, work in us in a mighty way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen and amen.